first. Don't be the last, yes. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to pray. Please stay standing, okay? Um, Heavenly Father, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit to work in us and through us. Speak through me, Lord, as we open your word this morning and as we learn uh, more about dealing with conflict, about being offended and what your, your desire is for us when it comes to this, the, the difficult trials of life that we have to walk through. I want to put you on display this morning. Speak to our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay up. Stay standing. I told you to stay standing. Okay. There's a quote here that's neat, I thought. That we should be too big to take offense and too noble to give it. That's from the Bible, but basically it's Abraham Lincoln quoting what we'll be talking about in many ways. But the reason why I want you to stand and stay standing is we're going to take what I call is the offense test. Okay? Now, let's see if you are too easily offended. Okay? And here's the test. All right? First question is this. Do you explode in fits of anger over little things? If you have never exploded in anger over fits of little things, then, yeah, and feel free if spouses point at each other if you know this to be true and so on. Take a seat if this is not true of you, okay? Anybody? Gage, you're up. You're gonna be up for all these, so I know you well enough, so, all right? Debbie, are you serious? Stand up, girl, I know you. Have you ever exploded over at a fit of anger over a... Something little, something minor, right? Okay, well, you were offended, okay? Whatever that was, at some point in time, there was offense, okay? You're only sitting down, okay, if it's not true of you. Do others say you make mountains out of molehills? No, they don't, okay? But you're still guilty of number one. Stay standing then, okay? Do you frequently take things the wrong way? Now, but notice, by the way, I'm standing still. Okay. All right. Do others feel like they have to walk in eggshells around you? <laughs> so the spouses are trying to sit down, but they're like the other. Seriously, you're going to do that? So. Do others consider you high maintenance? So every woman stand up, because you're high maintenance, okay? We all know that women are high maintenance, okay? All right? Now, if any of these things are true of you, stand. If none of them are, you can sit. Okay? You get the idea here, right? I got my point across. Everyone can take a seat, okay? Carol, we all know that Don has trouble living in reality. He should be standing for all these, but that's okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. compared to you, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. We should be too big to take offense and too noble to give it. We live in a society where we are too easily offended, Right? Well, I've wrestled back and forth with this sermon and prayed about it, and I, I decided I'm going to go ahead and, and, and relive this again, and, um, because what we're going to get into 
we'll go over, since it's been two weeks, we'll go over uh, the, the sermon real briefly before we get into the, the gist of it, which is really about embracing conflict and dealing with offense. But I want to uh, go back to you, and, and I'm going to share in probably greater detail now the story that happened to, to us when I was in ministry. And so you, this is where you're going to put your Bibles down just listen. I know that many of you um, don't have good memories. I don't mean that in a negative way. I happen to have a photographic memory. I remember a lot of things for some reason, except your names. I don't know why I am that way. I have trouble with names. But we remember through stories. And so I just want to tell you the story again of, of what happened with Erica and I in our ministry in Bowling Green. Um, there was a young couple that we hired on that I had worked with this young man for years. I discipled him when I was a student. I helped get him his first job, by the way. I don't know if you knew that or not. He was looking for work. He was recently married. I had a contact in the church, and we got him his job. And he, he didn't like the job. And so I offered him to come and work in our ministry. And he had to raise his own funds like I did, and, and, and they were working with us. And it was his wife that ended up being uh, part of the the real initial problem, I needed somebody to help work with the, the growing ministry we had. We started out with like two or three students, and by the end of the third year, we had 50 students that were coming in, in our ministry. Um, and um, there were a lot of girls that were involved, and I, you know, I needed a female there to help lead them. And so we hired this couple, and she was overseeing the women's ministry, and my wife was discipling her and working with her. But I was so... This was back in 2000, so it was, 20, it was 20 years ago. It's amazing how naive I can look back now and see how naive I was in my leadership. And um, certainly my leadership was part of the, the, the problem, though not intentionally. So what happened was she, she was a lady that had been hurt in her life. And that hurt in life in general, but especially in ministry, the issues that you have in your life play out in ministry. I'll say this. In marriage, the issues you have in your marriage, they play out in marriage, except for Don, who's perfect. Okay, apparently. So, okay. Well, she had these issues, and they started to manifest itself through the pressures of ministry, and she was offending the students. And... Um, you know, we were, she even asked at some point in time that maybe she just needed to step away, and, and this is one of the leadership mistakes Eric and I made. We thought we could help her through it by working with her. Um, I began to notice some of the cracks in the character of these, this couple, just as the normal flow of, of time and ministry and the pressures that come with it. Um, and it wasn't getting any better, and they had decided that they were just going to leave the ministry and go into seminary in, in, in Phoenix. That was great, and I gave them the blessing for that. The problem is, is that there was one prayer meeting that I wasn't able to attend, and she blew up again and, and caused another problem. She was offending people. This was pretty bad, and the other staff member came to me and told me. So I immediately brought uh, the husband of this wife, and the other staff member myself, and we talked about it and prayed about it and came up with this strategy. They were leaving in about six weeks, take off the rest of the time and get healthy and then, you know, we'll send you off and prepare for you and you go to seminary. Husband, you go tell your wife this decision. I'll go inform the students. That's what we agreed to. Left, everything was great. 
And here's what happened. I call the students, get their side of the story, tell them what we're doing, everything is good. The husband goes home. Now here's the thing. Turns out he's a passive, aggressive male. You recognize that term? He chickened out. He didn't tell his wife. Later that day, she calls the students. And for lack of a better term, all hell broke loose. She got greatly offended. And we were like, we called the husband, like, what are you doing? Why didn't you tell her this? Knowing there was a problem, I went to call her to smooth things over and everything. And I will never forget this. I was on the phone with her, and my wife was in the stairway, and she could hear this lady screaming using such foul language and the vitriol and the hatred that was coming out of her towards me. Now, mind you, I didn't do this on purpose to try to offend her or anything. This is just who she was. She was in a state of offense. She was hurt. And as I would soon learn, is that hurt people hurt people. Okay? Well, I went ahead and I called the, the senior pastor. And this is when my eyes began to be open and when I experienced my first real betrayal. And I've been betrayed a number of times in ministry. It, fortunately, it comes with the territory. By the way, if you've ever been betrayed, has anyone ever here been betrayed by a friend or by somebody? That's, that, that is expected. It happened to Jesus. He said it would happen to, to his followers. Okay? Now, all that being said, when I met with the pastor and we were talking, he let me know that this couple had already called the elder board and accused me of spiritual abuse. They had researched it. Of course, that wasn't true. Um, and that was the first, like, wow, my eyes are open to that. So I called the husband. We tried to, we, we met, and we had this long discussion. That was a good discussion. The only thing that was wrong with the discussion was that every 45 minutes he asked to go to the bathroom. We had a, a, a private leadership discussion about the issues in his life and in the ministry and, and, his, and his wife and all that and so on. It was a long two or three hour conversation. Okay? Interrupted every 45 minutes for him wanting something to drink or to go to the bathroom. Well, things didn't get any better. Uh, the church uh, elder board decided to let the pastor deal with this because they were testing the pastor. And remember I told you when it comes to conflict in life, and especially in ministry, what is the first lesson that pastors learn about conflict? You need to deal with it. This pastor was passive. He would not deal with it. And it went on the whole summer. And just made things worse. He was finally forced by the elders to do something. And so he had this meeting where we set up uh, to, uh, to get together and to uh, hopefully work things out. And this is one of the things I regret about this meeting. This was a meeting in the church where we were going to take communion together as the elders and as the, and the pastoral leadership, the church, which included me, and then this, this couple on our staff, to see if at the communion table hearts should be thawed and, and we could work out. Now, granted, I had already tried to reconcile, we had already tried to reconcile with this couple and they wouldn't have anything to do with it. Well, we sat down and, and we would not take communion together because of the issues in our heart. That led to what would turn out to be 
um, a failed Tuesday reconciliation meeting. It was at that meeting, amongst other things, that I discovered that the conversation that I had with that young man and all those breaks he was taking, he was tape recording these conversations. And he needed to go to the bathroom to switch sides of the tape. He then held secret meetings with his students and would play selected portions of it in an attempt to divide and destroy the ministry and destroy me. Now I'll get into more of that later as we go into the section on forgiveness in this sermon, which was, was crucial. But unfortunately, this is common for people in ministry, whether you're a pastor or whatever position you're in, because this is one of the things that God uses to form your character. Now, you can imagine when you are in a state of conflict like that, you are ripe for what we call being offended. And I told you that one of the things we talked about two weeks ago was what I called the big lie. That it's my experience that, that most people, including Christians, we arrange our lives around avoiding conflict. Now, I'm going to say that your silence and the dead silence in here is the same thing as a hearty amen. <laughs> right? We rearrange our lives around avoiding conflict. I think that we do that because we as Americans have been raised in a country that believes every individual has a right to what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? But we've interpreted that to mean this. I have a right to a comfortable life relatively free of any conflict. I mean, as Americans, we value comfort, don't we? The symbol of comfort in America is what? The lazy boy recliner. Absolutely, I love that chair. But this belief that we have about our lives is actually a lie from Satan. And I said, sadly, it is a lie that has been shamelessly peddled within Christianity. And the results of believing the lie that I should have a relatively conflict-free life has been crippling within the church. And as a result as well, Christians, it's my experience, and it's probably yours as well, they are ill-equipped to hand, handle conflict biblically. And it's kind of always been this way. In 1 Peter 4.12, it says this. And th this is some serious conflict. Peter's addressing a church in Rome that is being persecuted by the emperor Nero. And when I say persecuted, I'm talking about conflict here. They're in conflict with Rome. They're, they're being martyred. And he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, don't be surprised that you're going to be tested, that, you, that there's going to be conflict. Okay? They were. Don't be. So I say it to you, expect conflict in this life. Why do you think people get divorced at such a high rate? Because they go into marriage with an unrealistic expectation of what marriage is, right? And marriage is a lot of, unfortunately, what? There's conflict as you get to know each other. We're selfish, right? And as you learn, the marriages that make it, 
And the healthy marriage is one that learned to deal with conflict. And as the husband stops blaming the wife and starts blaming himself, the wife stops blaming the husband and starts blaming herself. That's when your marriage has a chance. Yeah, you're the problem. (laughs) I'm the problem. Look inwardly and move on. But the standard response to conflict resolution in our society is to avoid all conflict as if it were the plague. Now, I say that this is completely unrealistic because of the inevitability of offense. We talked about this, that, um, excuse me, that there's the certainty of offense. Do you remember this verse here? Jesus said to his disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come. In this world, you're going to be offended. That's just the way it is. And we briefly looked at three sources of offense. Do you remember these? That Jesus offends. He said that, that blessed is the man who is not offended by me. Well, what makes Jesus offensive? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is an exclusive claim. But we live in an inclusive society, do we not? That claim means that Buddha is wrong, Joseph Smith is wrong, Mohammed is wrong, secular humanism is wrong, all pantheistic religions are wrong. Every religion of human achievement is wrong. So Jesus is offensive. He offends. Conflict offends. The trials of life, the difficulties of life, you know, you know, affliction, persecution that arise in your life, they, people get offended and they fall away from the faith. And obviously people offend. We're told that if food causes a brother to stumble, there, the context there being uh, meat sacrificed to idols, then I'm not going to eat that meat sacrificed to an idol. Even though I can, I'm free to eat it. If I have a brother who, who it offends him, I won't eat that meat. But you can't eat that meat and offend that brother. But Jesus offends, conflict offends, people offend. And we run into what we call the trap of offense. You remember that word I told you about a couple weeks ago? Scandalon, remember that? Obviously not, let's say it again then. Scandalon, okay? The Greek word for offend, in Luke 17, 1, the verse I just showed you, for the word offend, it comes from the word scandalon. Do you remember the illustration I had over here? It refers to a part of a trap, which bait is attached. Thus the word implies laying a trap in someone's way, or it's called a snare. In other words, I had the shoebox, the top of the shoebox. I had a, a, a stick or a ruler holding it up. I had a shoelace tied to it and a, a bait tied to that shoelace. You pull on the bait, you pull the shoelace, you pull the stick. What happens to the box? It falls down. Okay? Well, that bait is a fence. So in other words, when you get offended you run the risk of being in the trap of offense. Let's take a look at that 
It's a, this verse right here. It says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Now, if you are a servant of the Lord or you're a believer, and if you're a believer, by the way, you are a bondservant. It says, don't quarrel. In other words, what does quarrel imply? Conflict, right? You're going to be in conflict. That's not to be a part of our lives, but they acknowledge it. But you need to be kind to all. You need to keep your phones on silence, Mark. So, be kind to all, it says there, okay? Watch, able to teach, patient when wronged. Now, what does that mean? Well, you're in conflict, and what should you expect? And by the way, this is in the church. What should you expect then? You're going to be People are going to hurt your feelings. That's what it means. They're going to disagree with you. They're going to hurt your feelings. You're going to be wronged. And how, what are you supposed to do? Be able to teach them, and you're supposed to be gently correct them, gently teach them, and endure the insult, endure the hurt, endure the pain. So I ask you, is that your first response when you're wronged? Our first response is typically what? <gasps> I have my rights, how dare you? Right? That's not how you live, okay? Because you're gonna have opposition. You're gonna be in conflict. And what we see here is that all this teaching, all this correction, even taking the insult, by the way, that's the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are you. Remember it, how it goes? When you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness? When they say evil things, but they slander you, all of that, okay? That's part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. You can do all this. You're patient, you teach and everything. There's a really good chance it's not gonna do anything because God has to grant that person repentance. And repentance is tied to the knowledge of the truth. So the people that, in this case, Timothy is in opposition with, who are arguing with him, are they in the truth? No. So if they're not in the truth, then what are they believing? The lie. And only God can bring them out of that place to a place of repentance. It means they, they change the way they think. Okay? And what happens when God does that, these people come to their senses, now watch this, and they escape the snare. There's that Greek word scandalon, that trap of offense of the devil. So now we know that offense, when you get offended, it is the bait of Satan. It is the, a trap that Satan sets for people. And once you are offended, you have a choice you have to make. Deal with that offense or not deal with it. And if you don't deal with it, guess what? You then, the trap falls on you. You're held captive by Satan, and what's even scarier is what? You do his will. This is what that couple was in, the trap of offense. And they did Satan's will. You follow me so far? Okay, 
So I gave you guys this as well, this little, just to drive home this point over and over and over again, the progression of you're in a state of conflict, you get offended, and what happens here as well is then if you don't deal with that offense, and let's face it, I had been offended many times before when I learned this stuff, okay? We don't know how to deal with offense very well, but you have to deal with it. Because if you don't deal with offense, so you're, you're in conflict, let's say, with a spouse, and they say something that hurts you or offends you, and you hold on to that, and you refuse to deal with it, then the next time you see your spouse, for example, and they do something they don't like, you just unload on them. Everybody that's married has done that, right? Well, you've been in a state of offense. That means that the hurt you have, the anger you have, it's unresolved. And unresolved anger is nothing but anger that's gone underground, anger in the heart, and that leads to bitterness. And then, when you're in that state, guess what? You're captive by Satan, and you do his will. Which leads to this next point, unforgiveness. So you have conflict, offense, unresolved anger, bitterness, unforgiveness. Then you're captive. You take advantage of Satan. You do Satan's will. And this is what another verse I showed you here which deals with offense. It says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. What does the phrase, the sun go down in your anger, what is that referring to? It's time, but what else? Letting the sun go down your anger is unresolved anger it's, or bitterness. You have not dealt with the hurt, the anger that is within your heart, Okay? And what happens then? What's this text say? You give the devil a foothold. Let me translate that for you another way. You invite Satan into your life and you have, you're open to demonic activity in your life. It will manifest itself through unkind words, through creating destruction, through creating division, all of that. There'll be a barrier between you and your spouse, for example. So you have conflict, and it comes in many forms. It's inevitable. You're offended. And by the way, people fall into one of two categories when it comes to offense. Do you remember this? There are those who are actually generally offended and those who think they are offended. But in both instances, you're hurt. And now you have to choose. Either you continue a state of offense or you resolve the offense. Then there's bitterness and by the way, if you're bitter, if you've harbored anger, hang, harboring anger always comes with its ugly cousin, resentment. Then you have unforgiveness. And offended people, by the way, they struggle to forgive. And if you are starting to forgive, guess what? That's a, a sign you're in the trap of offense. They're captive, they're caught in the trap of offense, they're a tool to be used by Satan, and they do Satan's will. Let me define Satan's will for you a little bit more in an easy way. What is Satan's will? Well, it's the opposite of what God's will is. See, God unifies. What does Satan do? Divides. 
God builds up. What does Satan do? Tear down. He tears down, exactly. And he does this through offended people. Hurt people hurt people. Now, let me go back to the story of this, this couple, this failed Tuesday reconciliation meeting. When we were at this meeting, and they unloaded on us, it was, it was really, we were on one side of the table, this couple was on the other side of the table. Over here was the, the, the senior pastor moderating everything. And when we, Erica was here, I was here, then another staff member, Chad, was here. When we found out what they did, we were all just blown away. We came to reconcile. They had no intention of reconciling. We were like a dartboard for them to just throw arrows at us. And when we found out what they did, we were stunned. It got so bad, and the senior pastor did a very poor job on handling it, that my wife, who was pregnant with Lee at the time, um, had to stop the meeting because Erica was in tears and she was afraid you were gonna go in labor. And we pulled aside to his office and we worked through some stuff. At that point in time, I decided I'm gonna take control. And so we got back to the meeting and I just took control of the meeting and I started asking questions and I went for one specific purpose. I directed the conversation through the senior pastor to see if these people would forgive. And I will never forget, we were all willing to put aside our differences and reconcile and forgive. They needed to go on record if they would forgive or not. And when the senior pastor turned and looked at this young lady and said, will you forgive? This is what she did. You see, forgiveness, it wasn't even an option for this couple. Remember that? They were telling lies. They had deceived. They had done everything. This is a classic by the book What I'm going through here what this couple did. They believed they had done nothing wrong. All of these actions were justified in their minds, and they saw no need to seek forgiveness to those whom they hurt. Now, to this day, this couple has still not reached out to us and sought forgiveness. We even had another meeting with the elder board and the husband and, and myself and other staff member to, to try and force him to forgive and to force him to at least offer forgiveness, okay? At one last attempt to help him, and he would have nothing of it. But this is what happens to people who are in or caught in the trap of offense. There was nothing that we could do to bring about reconciliation. We did everything we do to be at peace with them. It didn't work. It was up to God, and only God can change or can open their eyes and show them the truth, which leads to repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25. And God had not granted that to them. It was painful. It was hard. How do we avoid becoming like that? How can we avoid the trap of offense? And that's what we're going to close with the rest of our time, what I call embracing conflict. Everyone get your Bibles out. Turn to 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Where did I put this verse up here? Actually, I put it up here. But you can get your Bibles out if you want to. I want to show you something here. Because we just come off of the Sermon on the Mount, that long sermon series, which is really about being different, being counterculture. Well, it is countercultural to embrace conflict. But that's what the Bible teaches. Okay? And you all understand why 
when we get to this sermon. Again, Peter is talking to people who are in conflict. He says, and again, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's take a look at this. Because this is really kind of hard. We are to rejoice in what? In conflict, you see that? You don't just rejoice, by the way. You greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice for these various trials. Now, what he, Peter notices, and, what he, and, and I love this about the Bible, is that it lives in reality. Do you like, to, or do you rejoice when you're in conflict? Is that your natural response? No, it is not. But you have to work to get there. That's the goal. Okay? Because he says here that though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by this conflict. So do you need to be grieved by the conflict you are in? Is it necessary to be grieved? No, it is not. He wants you not to be grieved, but to what? Rejoice. What? I rejoice in the trials of life. I rejoice in the conflict and all that. What did the disciples do when Jesus was resurrected and they were preaching the gospel and they were brought before the Sanhedrin and they were flogged and then let go? What was this in Acts? What does it say they did? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the gospel. So you rejoice. And I'm translating rejoice, embrace conflict. Yet the world tells you to do what? Avoid it. No, embrace it. So I want to give you, because this is so foreign to our thinking, you know, six reasons to embrace conflict. And number one is this, that embracing conflict helps you escape the trap of offense. I'm not going to spend any more time on this. We've been over the trap of offense. If I deal with conflict and the, the offense that I may be in, I'm good. If I deal with it, great. That's what God wants you to do. And if you do that, you won't be, get caught in the trap of offense. Okay? So embracing conflict helps you escape or avoid the trap of offense. You guys understand that? Number two, embracing conflict guards your heart. Now I'm watching this progression we go through here as we go through these six points. Proverbs 4.23 says this, above all else do what? Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Now, what happens if I'm in conflict, I get offended, and I don't deal with that offense? Well, guess what? That unresolved anger and that bitterness and the resentment that you're harboring, that's sin. Okay? And you know what we do with that sin, by the way? I've struggled with it. I'm going to take a gamble that you struggle with it. When you get offended and you're hurt, do you know what we do? We replay that offense 
in our minds. Typically, we will replay it to where we are proven right in our little fantasy and they're proven wrong. And when we do that over and over and over again, all it does is it drives that unresolved anger, that bitterness, deeper within our hearts. But you're told to guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. In fact, above all else, guard your heart. Because why? Because this is what sin does to your heart. It says this in Hebrews 3, 12 to 13. You can just listen to this. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. In other words, this is talking about the Jews, or the Hebrews, when they were in the wilderness. There was a generation that would not believe God. God had parted the Red Sea, he provided water and manna, and all these miracles, and they wouldn't believe. They had an evil, unbelieving heart. They have fallen away from God. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin, in this case, you're offended. The bitterness, it hardens your heart. Now, you probably know people that are hurt, that are bitter. You can spot them a mile away if you know what to look for. A hardened heart, the sin that deceives and hardens the heart, it removes tenderness. It creates a loss of sensitivity. It severely limits the heart's ability to see the truth, to feel remorse for sin. Here's a radical thought that you need to get in your minds. Let me put you this way. When I was being um, forced out at my previous church, okay, they wanted to go in a different direction, there were some unkind things that were said about me. Who do I talk to? Well, you talk to your spouse, okay? And she sent a text to one of the board members, and he did not respond very well. But my wife became convicted because she was upset that I was hurt, and she was hurt. And she realized that she had been caught in the trap of offense. So she went to them, the board, and apologized for harboring the sin in her heart. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? How important this is. If she had not done that, what would sin have done to her heart? This is why when you move on from a pastor, they're typically ugly. Because what happens? The pastor's hurt, he doesn't deal with it properly. The, 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 the board is probably hurt. They're not dealing with it properly. The spouse isn't dealing with it properly. And it, it's ugly and the church splits and it's just not good, right? She wasn't even part of it, she was just my, my wife but she realized that she was going, that she was offended. And so what does God call you to deal with your sin? You deal with it, you confess your sin. She had to go to them and confess her sin to them. Above all else, 
guard your heart, right? Now, the third point, embracing conflict, and this is really, really important. It maintains your grip on reality. I'll explain what I mean by this, okay? There's another proverb that says this, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, okay? So as you think in your heart, so is he. Now listen to this. This is Romans 1, 18 to 22. It says, for the wrath of God, this is Paul speaking, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The truth about what? The truth about God. It's suppressed, it's rejected by men. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. So the truth about God and his existence, it's everywhere. He's made it plain. And what does man do with that truth? They suppress it. Now watch this. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Futile in their speculations mean that they stopped thinking rationally. Okay? Their heart, where man thinks, was darkened. Their understanding was limited. Now, by definition, truth is defined this way in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. That which is in accordance with reality. That makes sense, right? So, when you reject the truth, in this case the truth about God in Romans 1.18, what is left to believe then? If you reject the truth, what is left to believe? The lie, right? And a mind that believes a lie is what? Deceived. Therefore, it's no longer in touch with the truth, right? It's separated from the truth, it's believing a lie. Therefore, it's no longer in touch with reality. Does that make sense? It is darkened, and the result is futile thinking. This is exactly what Paul said to the Ephesians. He says this in Ephesians 4, 17 to 20. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. And how do the Gentiles or unbelievers walk? In the futility of their mind. They're not thinking clearly. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And they have ignorance in them because of the hardness of their heart. So the heart's been hardened by sin. They've been deceived by sin. Heart's been hardened. And they start to think differently. They reject truth, they believe the lie. This is why, folks, at the very base level, you have people questioning their gender identity. What is scientific, biological fact doesn't matter anymore. And they have become calloused, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. 
See, people in this spiritual state that reject the truth, they are dangerous. And why are they dangerous? And they're especially dangerous in the church. They're dangerous because they can justify any behavior that they want. Let me go back to that story again with that couple. This is what they did. This is their actions. They falsely accused me of spiritual abuse. They devised a plan to divide and tear down the ministry by deceitfully and secretly recording private conversations and asking questions that was nothing more than the setup of me. They held secret meetings with the students to slander our staff team by playing selected portions of secret conversations. They betrayed the staff's trust by taking the conflict to the students in hopes of winning the conflict. When confronted about their actions, they lied. So they bore false witness, they created division, stirred up strife, deceit, betrayed, slandered, lied. It goes on and on and on. And yet in their minds, they'd done nothing wrong. Now this couple was in Christian ministry. They'd helped lead worship at the church. They shared their faith, they prayed, they read their Bibles, they did all of that. How in the world do you have someone that's being used by God in ministry go from this position all the way over here where they can simply sit there and lie and believe that they are justified in that? Let me give you a kicker about the, this, the, the lying that they did. About two years before all this happened, I was with that young man. We were in a dorm sharing our faith, a couple college students. We would walk into the dorms. We were supposed to call in. They would come down and bring us up to their rooms. The students would. Well, nobody followed that rule. So we just went in, and like we had in the past, and we started a conversation with these students, had a great time with them. A residence hall director walks by, sees us in there, comes back about five minutes later with a police officer. And he questioned us as to did we call in and did they come down and escort us up? Well, we didn't do that. But the student so liked us so much that he lied for us. He said, yeah, these are my friends, I did that. And this staff member who was with me, he says, I can't have you lie for us. No, we did not. We walked down the hall and we did all this. Now, this staff member didn't want this student to lie for us while we're sharing our faith. Two years later, he's flat out lying to the church about what happened. How do you get to that position? What's the answer? What I'm taking you through, they got offended, they were in a trap of offense, they're captive by Satan, and they start to do his will. This happens all the time. In, in the corporate world, in the church, in relationships, that's what happens. They had lost touch with reality. And the sad thing about it was, was that when they were leaving, I was meeting with one of the elders, and he said to me, he said, you know, we thought this way about this couple, and now we have to start to think this way about them. And he had his own stories of hurt and pain of being in ministry prior to becoming a professor. And it was just an education in pain and suffering that we all had to go through to learn about this stuff. I've seen it in every church I've been involved in. People just, they lose touch with reality and they justify behaviors. And it's what happens when you, in this case, you get offended, 
That offense, folks, is a sin. If you don't deal with it, it will harden your heart and it will affect the way that you think. Number four, you will embrace conflict prevents spiritual blindness. See, offended people, they, 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 they've lost their grip with reality. They can't see reality. They, be, they become blinded to their true condition. Now, Jesus offers a cure, and you're not going to like the cure he offers, but he offers a cure for this type of spiritual blindness. In Revelation chapter 3, 14 and 18, he's talking to the church in Laodicea. He writes this, I know, verse 15, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot, would that you were, ne- were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, like people caught in the trap of offense, this church in Laodicea was blinded to the truth. They were unable to clearly and accurately see reality. Verses 15 and 16, in fact, you can turn there if you want. I didn't put this verse up there. It's Revelation 3, 14, 18. Verses 15 and 16, the last part of verse 17 is God's perspective. What was God's perspective of this church? By the way, God's perspective is always truth, it's always reality. It was this. They were a lukewarm church that was wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, and they were about to be rejected by God. That is not a healthy church. The last half, or the first half of verse 17 is their false perspective, and it's a deceptive lie. It is out of touch with reality. They saw themselves as rich, wealthy, and having need of nothing. You see, in their pride, they had mistaken their financial strength for spiritual strength. This blinded them to their true condition. Now, verse 18 is a tough part for us. It's God's cure for this type of blindness. And it applies to people who are blinded by sin in the trap of offense. That they will be set free from their deceptive blindness when they see the truth, but this truth is only found through buying God's gold refined by fire. In other words, buying God's gold refined by fire means embrace conflict. Refined gold is soft and pliable. It's free from corrosion. It's when gold is mixed with other metals, we call those metals alloys, like copper or iron or nickel and so on. It becomes hard and less pliable. And the higher the percentage of foreign metals in gold, the harder the gold becomes. Conversely, the lower the percentage of foreign metals and softer and more flexible the gold is. And so the question we're asking ourselves this morning is, well, how is gold refined? This is what I don't like. The first step in refining gold is you grind it into a powder, mix it with a substance called flux. Then the the mixture is placed into furnace and melted by intense heat. The impurities are drawn to the flux and it rises to the surface, and the gold, which is heavier, the pure gold, remains at the bottom. 
So the impurities or the dross is then removed, yielding a pure gold. So a pure heart then is like gold, Peter says. It's soft, it's tender, it's pliable. Instead of being hardened by sin, the sin is removed through what? Fire, which is a symbol for affliction, which is a symbol for conflict, the furnace of affliction, the furnace of conflict. Only then with this church, when they go embrace conflict, guess what? Then they'll be set free and they will no longer be spiritually blind. Now, you may not may have forgotten this, but the church in Indiana that I came from was part of a, it was a, a part of a Mennonite denomination. Now, the history of the Mennonites is interesting. Do you remember the Reformation back in 1543 with Martin Luther? And then it bled over into John Calvin and others. Well, it was a great thing that man was justified in God's sight by faith, the Protestant Reformation. Unfortunately, it wasn't a clean Reformation. They broke off from the Catholic Church but kept some of the Catholic uh, practices. One of them was infant baptism. The Bible doesn't teach infant baptism. It teaches believer's baptism. Okay? Well, with the Bible now in the hands of the people, some people realize that, hey, I don't need to have... I was baptized as an infant. I wasn't a believer. I need to be baptized now as a believer. I need to be rebaptized. And so these men secretly, because this is really controversial, baptized themselves again. They were called rebaptizers or Anabaptists. And they were persecuted by the church. Out of this Anabaptist movement came, of course, the Baptist churches. Okay? And they embraced two, two, two key doctrines. One was believer's baptism. The other was passivity. They believe in, they were pacifists. They believed that, you know, you turn your cheek. They took that to a literal extreme. And so they fled from the persecution. And eventually out of this movement was born the Mennonite group of people, which out of the Mennonite was born the Amish people. And where we lived in Northeast Indiana was heavy Mennonite Amish, which meant that it was very, very passive. And it played itself out big time in this church. When I first read at the church, like any church that goes through a transition, the old leadership is typically burned out. I had to build a new, st new board with a limited number of people, and so I had them take personality tests. Eventually, I had the whole church take personality tests. And it labeled your personality in four distinct ways. You had the, the hammer personality, the strong leader, which would be me. Below that, you'd have uh, the, the, it was called a tape measure. They're the precise engineering you know, dis, uh, type of people, okay, precision. You had the, uh, a Swiss army knife, which was the entertainer or the, the goofy type person. You had the wimpy type person, which was the duct tape. They were the friendly people. The percentages in this church were staggering. Maybe 5% were the strong leader type the majority were wimpy, passive people, which made sense, right? Because it was a heavy Mennonite area. Well, guess what that means when there's conflict? What do you think was the standard practice in that church? They avoided it. They didn't avoid it. You know how they avoided it, by the way? They did this. They stuffed it. They pushed it down which is another way of saying they let the sun go down their anger and they were bitter people, okay? 
when I was moving on and when the youth pastor was moving on and when every other pastor that had been there moved on, the one thing we had in common, the, the denomination saw that about this church as well, that the leadership of the churches were blind to reality. And you know why they were blind? They were offended. They didn't deal with it because they were passive. And their hearts were hardened in the natural responses. Their thinking was different and they could not see reality. Embracing conflict, by the way, affirms the sovereignty of God. You need, to, you need to really get this. Who brings conflict into your life? Isaiah 48, 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. God is the one, all the conflict in your life is brought into your life by God. Do you remember the story of Joseph in the Bible? You guys remember that story? His brothers betrayed him, sold him into slavery. He rose the second in, in command in Egypt. His brothers were concerned that when they were reunited with him that he would treat them unfairly. And he says this in Genesis 50, 20. By the way, he was 17 years old, I think it was, when he was sold into slavery, and he was 30 when he became second in command. The first seven years of the, the dream of Pharaoh, the first seven years of prosperity had passed, so 20 years had passed, two years into the, the famine. So he was 22 years, he hadn't seen his family. They arrive, they're reunited. They know what they did to him, he knows what they did to him, and this is what he says. As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Who brought that into Joseph's life? God did. Joseph did not see the conflict he endured as coming from man, but from God. Now, to buy gold refined by fire means, folks, you embrace conflict. Don't avoid it. Why? Because God is the one who brings it in your life. Who is the one refining and testing us in the furnace of affliction? It is God. And since it is impossible in this world to live and not be offended, if you avoid conflict and do not deal with an offense, you're going to bear the fruit of your decisions, which is bitterness and anger and resentment. And unfortunately, this is characteristic of too many churches today. All of the energy put into denying the sovereignty of God by avoiding conflict. I mean, how have you avoided conflict? Anybody in here? It's tiring, isn't it? It's very tiring. All it leads to is this, a hardened heart, an inability to hear God's voice. It promotes spiritual blindness, and you open yourself up for deception. But perhaps even more tragic than being blind to the truth is you forfeit the work of God in refining your character when you avoid conflict and you live in a state of offense. That's the final point. Embracing conflict actually glorifies God. Look at 1 Peter 1. Check. I'll go back to that verse. I want you to see this. And what's the end result of all this? If I embrace conflict and let God do the work within me, what's happens at the end. Praise, honor, and glory 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's not you being glorified. That's your character so, so shining through that God is glorified. If we see the conflict in our life as coming from a sovereign God who wants to purify our character, and Christ-like character is formed through conflict, so he wants to purify our character, thus proving the genuineness of our faith to the glory and praise of God, then we gladly embrace conflict. And let me just close with this. By embracing conflict, I mean this. Allow God to perfect the character of Christ within you. You're going through some conflict, how about this? God, what is it that you want me to learn about myself? What am I doing wrong? Where have I offended? What do you see in me that I don't see in me that you want to bring out of my life? You need to have this attitude about conflict. It's an opportunity for God to be glorified through the forming of the character of Christ in you. That reaps your reward. That glorifies God at his second coming of his son. But if you avoid conflict... Conversely, you forfeit the opportunity to glorify God in the forming of your character. Do you understand that? And the option is then if you don't, if you avoid conflict, you stay in a state of offense, what do you become? Bitter. That is not glorifying to God. You suffer loss for that. In fact, what happens is the opposite happens. You don't glorify God, you end up doing the will of Satan. And so what I'm asking you to do is simple. I want you to simply embrace conflict. It is a different way of thinking. This message was the beatitude of blessed are you when you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Blessed are you when people insult you, they slander you, they say all kinds of evil things. It proves that you are what they did to the prophets. It proves you are the line of the prophets your believer. So don't avoid conflict. Embrace it. Deal with it. Okay? And part of guarding your heart, by the way, when you are offended by somebody, your spouse or a co-worker or your pastor or whoever, is you pray for those who persecute you. I can't tell you how many hours I spent on my knees praying for that couple and God changed my heart. I didn't want anything. I wanted them to be proven wrong and me proven right. I wanted them to suffer. Very normal feelings, right? But I knew that that wasn't glorifying to God. And I wanted to prove myself a child of God. So I prayed for them and prayed for them and prayed for them and prayed for them and prayed for them. A lot of time and effort. And God began to actually change my heart so I actually desired what is good for them. When I was doing, I'll close with this story, when I was doing fundraising all those years as a, as a missionary, I ran into a pastor, you know the story, that was bitter by ministry. And he was about to be ushered out of this church, and he was bitter, and he was just tearing down this congregation to me and, and, and ripping them and criticizing them. And I left that fundraising appointment with that pastor and thought to myself, I'm never going to be like that man. I think he was done in ministry. That person, God can no longer use someone like that. And so 
Embrace conflict. Lean into it. Humble yourself. God's testing you to, to purify you and to teach you. And then, and only thing, he can then use you. Let's pray. Father, may your, you be glorified this morning through this sermon, I hope. I hope that you had opened eyes. Lord, show us through your spirit where we may be offended. That we may escape the trap of offense. Escape captivity. No longer do the will of Satan, but do your will. Lord Jesus, may you bless this food as well to the nourishment of our bodies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you're dismissed to go eat. We're going to a little over today, but enjoy the food. And have, have fun. And if you don't hurry, I'm going to beat you to the line. <laughs>